Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books in Popular Culture. And today I am here with Will York, who's the author of Who Cares Anyway? Post-Punk San Francisco and the End of the Analog Age. Will, thanks for being here with me today on New Books Network. Thank you. Thank you. And apologies for the long title. <laughs> <laughs> no problems. Could you start by um, talking a bit about how this book came to be and why you decided to write about um, San Francisco and the San Francisco music scene? Uh, yes. I mean, uh, it it almost felt like a destiny after uh, after a while. Uh, maybe it goes way back to when I was a college radio DJ in uh, Chapel Hill in the late 90s, and I started coming across some some odd records from uh, Amarillo, the Amarillo label, and some associated things. And I kind of built up a, a mythical idea of, of San Francisco that when I moved out there, I realized wasn't quite accurate. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily say I moved out there to because of that music scene, but it definitely contributed to the to this picture that I had of San Francisco when I moved out there after college. But uh, within a few years, I started having the opportunity to interview uh, some of the people associated with that music for the my, in my role writing for the San Francisco Bay Guardian, freelancing. And you know, I was covering a lot of different kinds of music, not specifically the kind of stuff that went into the to the book, but those things would come up from time to time when somebody had a reissue or maybe a reunion show or uh, maybe a, a new release that that was related. And so, within a few years, I had done a handful of these kind of retrospective articles and started to meet people and learn a little bit more. And at that point a couple of people started encouraging me or maybe they were joking saying I had to write a book about this, but that sort of planted the, the seed. And then, uh, I thought I was going to work on it like in spare time during graduate school, which <laughs> didn't happen at all. Uh, I didn't, that's another thing I had a, had an imp- incorrect sort of impression of, uh, what it would be like. But when I, by the time I finished graduate school and had gone through, uh, sort of, yeah, whatever that whole process is, I, I kind of got re. Uh, I realized that I had an opening to sort of work on this, and and that if I was going to actually do it, this would be the time to do it. And so, I really did most of the work uh, post twenty fifteen. But, but uh, I felt at that point like, okay, I really do need to need to do this. It felt like something that I was almost like a calling to do. And then it's mostly a matter of crossing my fingers and hoping that no one else was secretly doing the same thing. There's always that. (laughs) So like, I think often when people, at least when you say San Francisco, when you say the Bay Area, we think about music, it's often sort of the, you know, the hippie era. And we think of Haight-Ashbury and all of that. And so, but you are looking at this sort of long, strong history of punk. And so can you sort of situate us in this space? I mean, you start with um, the punk era, right? So can you kind of situate us and, and bring us into punk and the punk era in San Francisco? Yes, yes. And um, that, that's that's true. And, you know, when I first started on this, I was looking at things that happened in the early mid 90s. And so that might seem like a long way from punk, especially when you're talking about music that doesn't look or sound like uh, punk 
TM, you know, that's not, you know, three to four piece band doing two to three minute guitar based songs. You know, the, the, the surface level of things of, of what I'm looking at doesn't resemble that at all. But I started to sort of trace it back and trace it back further. And then eventually you hit a point where you can more or less say it's ground zero. Now, somebody, you know, I didn't focus so much on the very beginnings of punk, but I certainly did a lot of research on that and interviewed people. And the picture that I got was that, you know, even though we're talking really just 10 years from 1967 to 1977 or 66 to 76, um, a whole era had sort of played itself out. Now, there were still remnants of that hippie culture or, uh, you know, you would still have certainly the Grateful Dead playing uh, Winterland. Um, some of the musicians like Bruce Luce from Flipper was a, you know, he, he grew up in San Francisco and was a teenage deadhead. So, uh, you know, Veil from Research and Search and Destroy had been in, in a later lineup of Blue Cheer. So there were people who had connections to that. But by the time you get to 1974, 75, it's almost a cliche that, you know, uh, the music industry was dying or dead and punk comes along and, and it creates this new, uh, you know, sense of, of energy or enthusiasm uh, mixed in with a lot of, you know, n negativity. But, you know, a lot of people basically corroborated that, you know, and I, from their own experiences that, that, you know, it was pretty stale. It was not, you know, this, this whole idea that I grew up with of, you know, bands playing in clubs, playing original music, uh, independent labels, et cetera, didn't really exist. And so in that sense, punk really was ground zero. Uh, you could go back to the very first, I think it would be, I think it could be considered the first punk record on the West coast, which was the crime single, uh, hot wire, my heart and, uh, baby, you're so repulsive that came out in 1976 on their own label. And it's like, they really didn't know what they were doing. They didn't have, there wasn't an audience for it. There wasn't a place to record the music that understood what they were doing. There was no way to really distribute it. When people heard it, they thought it was terrible. <laughs> but that was kind of the kind of the beginning. But it was, uh, I guess, it, it attracted people because it was so different from, uh, you know, seeing the remnants of Jefferson Airplane, at, um, you know, Hot Tuna or something that that band, or seeing um, Nth Generation. Uh, lineup of Santana or, or some other band like that. And so even though it was just 10 years, which is about how long some bands take between albums nowadays, uh, it was a huge change uh, culturally that punk represented. Uh, and, and as you were talking, one of the other things um, that comes sort of through throughout this, but especially in these earlier sort of punk era, post-punk in San Francisco, and I think throughout is the the importance of art school and sort of that artist and artist aesthetics. So can you talk a bit about sort of some of those connections to like some of the connections between the art school students and coming into the scene and how they sort of work to create a scene? Yes. Yes. And I, I, that's a good point. Um, and that connects back into to North beach, uh, which is, you know, a part of San Francisco that its cultural associations are more the beat era, the jazz clubs in the sixties. And then it was more or less a red light district, uh, strip clubs and such in the, in the seventies, but not far away from there was, uh, well, city lights books. But then, um, I think less than a mile from there is the art Institute, 
uh, the San Francisco Art Institute. And so definitely a lot of the early bands had members uh, from the Art Institute, um, some that I don't focus on as much, but uh, the Avengers would be one. Uh, the Mutants, who I do fo- uh, spend some time on. Uh, Pink Section came a little bit later, but all four of their members had, were at the Art Institute at some point, and many, many others. And then there was also the the Art Academy. Wait, <laughs> the, the Academy of Art. Uh, yeah, where Joe Rees from Target Video taught, and even Ted Falcone from Flipper briefly taught. Some others went there as students, but that was more the commercial art or... Uh, you know, so that had a different kind of association. And then there were even, um, you know, say Tuxedo Moon, which would be a band that's not necessarily punk, but certainly of this era. They, oddly enough, did not have an art school background. One might have looked at them from the, the outside and thought they were the artiest of, of all the bands. But they met, uh, their, their two main members met at City College of San Francisco, where they um, had opportunity to... Um, you know, work with synthesizers and these new, you know, electronic uh, music production techniques or, or performance techniques that weren't really available. So there was there was a lot. It wasn't just the Art Institute. Um, and at the same time, even with a band like, say, the Avengers, where two or three of the members were from the Art Institute, they would have other members who had no art background. And so you would have a mixture of artists, non-artists, capital A art, uh, you would have people who had more background as musicians, people who had almost no backgrounds. And so I think that was, you know, that's something that definitely makes the interesting, <laughs> the early era in particular so interesting is that it wasn't, there wasn't a set, uh, there wasn't an, a pre-existing sort of population of musicians to draw from who understood this thing. It was more just like it was, it really came about uh you know, spontaneously through these kinds of different connections that people had and people were winging it and making it up as they went. So in that, right. So the first two kind of um, sort of sections on the punk era and the post-punk era are looking at that, like, you know, prior to when we get into like the 1980s. Um, So are there certain um, bands that you want to, that, you know, you you talk to a number of people throughout the book, right? A number of bands, but there are certain bands in that era that you think um, really highlight are really important as you sort of move forward as we think about how they kind of grounded and created this space in San Francisco. Yes, yes, definitely, and um, I, and I, I think that at any era there are kind of there are always multiple sort of trails sort of uh or or tracks or or pathways and so i whenever i want to f- start to focus on a couple i have to keep in the back of my mind that there's other stuff going on but but one sort of transition that was uh that that is em- that i emphasize and that was you know emphasized to me in in interviews was um you know the early bands uh, the sleepers and negative trend and this is more on the the rock side of things as opposed to the more arty side of things. But those bands were, you know, initially, you know, you would say they were punk bands. Um, But by 1979, those bands are sort of starting to either fall apart or, um, or in the case of the sleepers sort of reform with a different lineup. But eventually uh, what, what had been negative trends sort of turned into or, or, 
uh, split into f- flipper and toiling midgets. And so those groups, uh, even though they had a common origin in, in the same sort of, sort of group of people, they went in two very different directions where flipper, you know, some people would consider them hardcore or on the fringes of hardcore, but they're also really noisy and slow and sort of uh, stubborn and confrontational and, and funny, and they have their own quirks and characteristics that they they were one direction. And then toiling midgets were much more introverted and, um, moody and, and, uh, they, they had Ricky Williams with them for a while. who was a, sort of a, a main character in this book and, and they went in a different direction. But I think the important thing with both of them was that, uh, they kind of said, we're not doing this punk rock thing anymore. Uh, we're going to try to do something else. And uh, Peter Irvin, who had managed Negative Trend, really emphasized this, that, you know, that by, say, 1979, a lot of the people who had been there in 77, 78, were already saying, you know, this is kind of over as far as this initial thing that punk was trying to do. Uh, and, and that was, you know that was interesting to to me to to learn i mean I, it, because if you look at it from from a distance it all kind of looks the same uh you know from 1977 to 81 you know and also a lot of this stuff you know 1979 for them to say it's over it might sound kind of elitist but you know a lot of this stuff hadn't even really reached outside of the cities and so at the same time it was tr- starting to make its way into the suburbs and turn into eventually what became hardcore a lot of these early participants were kind of saying it had done what it was supposed to do. It was supposed to be more of an anti-art movement or, or a, a negative kind of thing where you're, we're saying we're tired of this old stuff. And then so the the post idea is not just after, but it's more like, I mean, it is like after punk, but it's more like, what do we do after this initial um, anti-art period or this anti-music sort of period what what next and so that's really more the sense in which like post-punk is being used here uh where you know even like punk is considered a genre post-punk will often be considered a genre where where you'll see people say you know i'm interested i'm forming a post-punk band and and influences include joy division uh, Susie and the Banshees and, uh, and Gang of Four or Wire or something. You know, that's, that's like one thing. But here it's really more like about the process of sort of tearing this old stuff down and then trying to figure out something new or I guess to paraphrase Simon Reynolds to rip it up and start again. And so it's this idea of starting again. But then if that wasn't too long-winded, what I'd add is that at, as that more guitar-oriented sort of, you know, rock-oriented, uh, train of influences or, uh, you know, whatever you would call that, that pathway kind of is represented by that negative trend into flipper and toiling midgets sort of thing. You also had a whole lot of other stuff that was not, you know, working in that rock sort of configuration where you would have say, uh, I mean, tuxedo moon is very important in this regard where, uh, they were influential just in terms of how they would perform with a, you know, often without a drummer, uh, with synthesizers, with visuals, with um, the idea that every show that they would do would be different a lot of times. I mean, they weren't just coming up there to play a bunch of songs and and that was it. And and honestly, that's true of, of Flipper as well in, in their own way. But, but Tuxedo Moon was influential on... 
uh, say factrix who who were a kind of might be considered more industrial but minimal man patrick miller and that was his own sort of thing but all of these um and who am I leaving out? There were plenty of others who were sort of in, in that orbit who were using electronics and, um, you know, again, not functioning like rock bands, doing a lot of, uh, again, multimedia visuals, um, just really sort of, um, but again, I'll use Simon Reynolds because he referred to that kind of tradition as, as dark cabaret. And so that that is something that is, I think, very San Francisco uh, for that that era. And and that that uh, why do I keep saying train? But that's that influence played itself out and you could see it in eventually uh, Carolina, which doesn't look at all like Tuxedo Moon or um any of these groups, but as far as being very performance oriented, very visual oriented, uh, odd noise making instruments and such. Um, and I could say more about them cause I wouldn't explain you know, there. These are certainly not household names. So any of these I can say more about. Yeah. I thought it was interesting because you can kind of see that sort of the, I don't think, know if it's a divide, but you see some of these bands that are very much art bands, right? We're going to play the same song for the whole set, or we're going to, um, like there's a story in there about, uh, taking, not wanting to taking old albums um, that they bought in the dollar bins and um, pulling out all the sleeves and using the, like, you know, painting those over and making their own. Right. So there's all this. So there's just kind of like very anti establishment um, spaces. And then you've got this divide between that and then um, bands like faith, no more who you talk about a lot about saying, we are going to find a way to become part of the mainstream. Right. Um, but both sort of coming at it through this idea, this this similar space or the similar, you know, but um, the outcome is very different. Yes, yes. And I, I, I'm kind of, I don't know, bracing myself. I can imagine people saying, asking, why did you talk about Faith No More, um, given that, you know, aren't they aren't they more like a new metal band or something and you know or there's a later era that that their fans would maybe have wanted me to talk about although that's been talked about elsewhere but i think yeah it it, it is it is true i'm not making it up if one were to go look at say some flyers from 1984 uh there were uh you know on the same bill you had uh Faith No More and Caroline are a very early lineup of them. And then this band Glorious Den, which was probably musically closer to, to Faith No More, but but they were certainly fellow travelers. And maybe at that point, Faith No More was, you know, more, quote, experimental, uh, kind of almost tribalish percussion sounds and sort of killing joke, public image, sort of repetitive type music. But yeah, they were, you know, one could say that this is a, a, I don't know, that they're trying to, and I guess I use this expression, have their cake and eat it too. They want to be big and famous. And they're just using this as an excuse just to sort of justify what they're doing. But I thought that, you know, they were, they were sort of honest, even in those early interviews that, yeah, they were, they were trying to, or that they wanted to sort of insinuate themselves, but to sort of, or in fact, or sort of make it somehow, um, I think 
Bill, their their bass player and sort of main kind of musical architect, said, you know, that it would be like robbing a bank to sort of make their way into this and uh, this mainstream. And then, at the, yeah, at the same time, Carolina was very equally committed in the opposite direction of of being, you know, there are no barcodes on their records. There are no names. There are no, you know, songwriting credits. There are no, uh, really, you know, they didn't have any, they never did CDs. I mean, now, now one can go to Bandcamp and get some CDRs, but they still have, uh, hand painted covers and whatnot. So they never did anything. They never did straightforward interviews. They never did anything. And, and I don't, and I don't want to say that one of those methods or approaches is the right one or the other one is the right one. They're both, to me, they're both valid. And I think it's interesting that the same, initially the same more or less community uh, could give rise to, to both. And so I thought as different as those bands are, and as unlikely as it is that any one reader is going to like one as much as they like the other, uh, I thought it was a, an interesting study in contrast given that they were in the, you know oddly enough their career sort of paralleled one another in 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 the time frame yeah and i think it spoke to that that scene and what that scene produced and i thought that was really interesting too um and also i i thought one of the things too was interesting is how much the scene sort of drew people um to san francisco right there's a lot of folks who left iowa right. <laughs> came to, right but it was like i mean even with faith no more you know there were people who were kind of like drawn to san francisco because of that scene and probably because of the complexity in the scene even leaving texas right in these areas and so can you talk a little bit about that too like people coming coming to san francisco or the point where some of these bands then decided to leave san francisco Right, right. It, it is definitely um, uh, Carol from uh, Pink Section and Inflatable Boy Clams. It's, you know said it's a you know place of transience. I remember that phrase. And and you know there are we have to remember there are families and people who live grow up there and live there. But in the course of doing these interviews, um, I would say I interviewed 110 people. I mean, more than half, more than half came from outside of you know, San Francisco and certainly, you know, outside of the Bay area. And then you had people coming from outside of the San Francisco proper and sort of settling there. But I, that was definitely a, um, one of the sort of themes is this idea of, you know, or, or something I tried to figure out as I went along, you know, what is it about San Francisco? What does it represent? And there are all sorts of levels at which one could, uh, sort of analyze that either in terms of, you know, recent countercultural history, hippies and beats and everything like that? Or is it the gold rush? Or is it uh, Nat what Native Americans were doing there before? Or is it, is it a sacred land? Or is it a, uh, is it a not sacred, but is there some magical something or other that that's beyond, uh, you know, <clears throat> what happened in 1849? Uh, you know, it, it's hard to say, but at least in, you know, in the era of the book, it's certainly, you know, if, if we think about like major cities in the U.S., major cultural centers, you have, you would have New York, L.A., San Francisco, and certainly there are other places like say on the West Coast, you would have, uh, you'd have Portland and Seattle, but 
quite often you would have people look around and say Portland in 1979 and say, there's not a whole lot going on here. They would move to, maybe they would then move to San Francisco. No, no uh, disrespect to Portland because a lot of those same people would turn around and move back to Portland years later. Uh, uh, same kind of thing with, with Seattle. Uh, then like you mentioned, Iowa, there were, there were multiple waves of people who moved from, from Iowa. There were people who moved from, from Michigan. There was, uh, because of the Faith No More thing, there were a lot of people who moved from Humboldt County in way north Cali- Northern California. Um, you know, I came from, from North Carolina much later, but I think the, it probably what drew me out there is not too different from what drew a lot of the, the people out there. You sort of look around and say, I, you know, I want to, I want to experience life in a big city or I want to experience something different and maybe look at New York and say, that seems a little bit too much. You know, it seems a little bit too intense. And, you know, I thought about moving to New York and had a disastrous, uh, experience when I went up there looking for a job and, uh, and I just said, that's not, not going to work. And I kind of looked at Chicago, but then I thought, well, if I'm going to move, I might as well move. And, and so, um, but yeah, there, there were people, and I just did an interview with someone who I unfortunately didn't interview for the book. And he told me that he actually moved out from, uh, the Northeast. I think it was upstate New York to play in Carolina. Uh, I thought a lot of times what would happen is somebody would move out there and they would already be interested in weird music or, or whatnot. And then they would stumble across them and say, what is this? Uh, what is this group that plays in these, you know, uh, you know, bizarre, uh, costumes that nobody knows their identity. I might want to be a part of that, but he actually moved from across the country. So really you had all kinds of different, I mean, everyone I talked to would have a different story, but it would kind of fall into a few basic categories. Either they just wanted to get away from something. They just had some idea of San Francisco um, maybe they were moving there for a particular reason, but, but more often it was like what Mark Davies from the thinking fellers, uh, told me that they had some idea of different music that had happened out there, whether it was the residents and Ralph records or, um, something else like that, but it wasn't really because of that. But at the same time, there was something that attracted their personality, you know, someone of their personality type to San Francisco, as opposed to LA or as opposed to New York. And I think there is something there. And then when you get a lot of those people together, that can be, um, you know, that can lead to these kinds of, <laughs> the kind of music that comes up in San Francisco, as opposed to, uh, to New York or, or LA and kind of what gives it its, its character. So another thing, right. And you brought up Ricky Williams at the beginning. And um, so, there's these great things, but there was also some very tragic things and, and, you know, that were going on um, during this time and lots of drugs and, and a number of people overdosing or passing away. So can you talk a little bit as you did this um, about that? And, and I don't know if it's the downside of the scene or just, you know, not to be a downer, but it's an important element to um, what was going on and what sort of fueled, many of these folks. Yeah. So that, that was something that I was really kind of struggling with early on as far as, you know, even just interviewing people, because I was interviewing 
certainly a lot of people who I interviewed were, you know, uh, are, you know, in recovery um, in various stages. Uh, sometimes they were in recovery that didn't, you know, um, they had, they would still have lapses. I interviewed Chuck Mosley from, from their, you know, the original or one of the, the earliest real vocalists that Faith No More had in uh, 2017. And he passed away about six months later. And he had some Ricky Williams like uh, kind of uh, experiences with the band as far as they would have a big show and he would not be in, a, in shape to perform and, and that sort of thing, uh, to put it uh, euphemistically. And so, yeah, I, was, I would constantly have to sort of remind myself as I was working on this that these are real people and and um because it can be so it can be easy to get not swept up in one one possibility would be to to romanticize it to overly romanticize it another possibility would be to you know to glorify it or even to start to see these really strong personalities as as characters and i do tend to refer to somebody like ricky williams as as a character or patrick miller minimal man it's a character because almost like if i were a fiction writer i don't know that i would have been able to kind of make up care make them up they were such strong um you know flawed but unique uh talented uh, difficult, uh, uh, people. And so, you know, I, I guess what I could say about this is that I, I really tried to rely on the, the interviews and talking to people. And I'm grateful for, for everyone who, who did talk about, uh, the people, including sometimes they would give details of, you know, someone's, someone's death. And, uh, there were a couple of situations, uh, where, in which someone would just say they didn't want to talk about this because it was too painful. And I certainly wasn't going to, going to push on that, but yeah, it is, it is tragic, uh, in so many, many of these cases. And I guess what I, f I felt like in those cases, particularly that it was, you know, important to, to have their stories be told in a way that was respectful, you know, and, and to, because a lot of times you would have, I mean, an example would be uh, in Crawford, as she's referred to, Anne Crawford from a, a group called G.O.D., God, um, that, you know, they never put out a record. They recorded a demo and one of their, um, you know, surviving members uh, shared it with me and I thought it was great. It really, uh, I think it could be released today and people would be excited about it. Um, some people. And, and so, but at the same time, you know, she was influential on the people who formed Frightwig and influential on her bandmates in G.O.D. She was described as someone who was sort of a, a lost soul who would said that she didn't think she was going to be alive that much longer. And then it turned out that, that she wasn't, but you know, to, to at least have that, uh, in the words of the people that, you know, that, that she worked with or, or that she was friends with. And, uh, you know, in, in other words, there's, there is plenty written about the 27 club and Kurt Cobain and Hendrix and all these other, but, but there are a lot of others who, who made important contributions and who had a, an influence on the culture through other people that, 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 that they were contemporary with, uh, Michael Kowalski, another example, who really were influential, who were really there early on, and who, who, um, 
yes, who, who didn't make it. And I think, I guess, I guess the other thing about it is that it really, especially when those early years, say 77 to about 83, it really reinforces what a bunch of, and I say this in the most respectful way, but outsiders, uh, that these the, these people were and, and they were not being handed anything uh they were not um even though some of them might have gone to, to art school uh they really were doing it on the seat of their pants and so and you know there was there were some bad decisions that the people would make there were there's certainly the you know questions of why why some of these drugs were so so prevalent uh, and, and all that, but I think, yeah, it's, it's just part of it and there's really no way to avoid it. And I hope, I guess I could say, I hope I didn't on the one hand, you know, yeah, glorify it or lose sight of the fact that, um, as dramatic as some of the stories are, they are still the stories of real people and, and not to sort of, uh, yeah, lose sight of that. Yeah. I think there was, um, and I don't remember who said it, but basically it was kind of like, why are we talking about Sid Vicious? He was kind of smelly and, you know, he was nonsense. We should be talking about these people. And I think it's that kind of that, that right. Like, I think it's, it's thinking about like, yes, we glorify often Sid Vicious in these ways um, that we don't, and that we need to think about there, there was some tragedy there, right? There were some real issues and there was issues with all these. So I think we, um, we see the whole person, right. When you're talking and when you're being able to talk to multiple people about it. So, and I guess the one other thing is, I think, I mean, this is again, uh, just a perspective on it. I'm not saying it's the right one, but there, there can be times when you look at someone and say, they might've died young, but they didn't, uh, they didn't, they didn't go halfway. I mean, they, they, they lived with a sense of, of purpose and they were not going to find themselves sitting there at the end of their lives wondering what if I had done this, you know, I mean, that's again, easy for me to say, but I mean, one person said this about, a um, Eric Juncker, who, um, not a major figure in terms of being well-known, but he, he died on stage. And one of his of bandmates said, I thought it was a great way for him to go because he died doing what he loved. And it kind of was jarring at first, but um, I don't think there's one right way to think about it. It's just that there are different ways to think about it. And that, and, and that would be one other way to think about it, right or wrong. So, <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and so another thing that I really appreciated about your book was that um, – you talk to folks, but you also did, and maybe it's because I uh, researched zines, but you looked at zines, you looked at some of that ephemera, right? Um, so you have zines and images and, and other things. And so can you talk a little bit about that too? Like, so it's not only these like interviews you did with people, but kind of looking at the ephemera from these scenes and these spaces and times. Yes, I I thought that was imp important because those are sort of well, those are like the primary sources uh, of of you know that that history and you know I, I should emphasize that you know I I was coming to this um, as someone who did not experience that stuff firsthand. I mean, I was alive. I was, um, but but this is almost like a parallel world um, to to what I grew up in. I mean, I, I can see 
okay, yes, this was the era I grew up, but I didn't see it happen. So I really, yeah, wanted to find what, what people were saying about these things at the time. And two in particular that I don't know if I would have been able to, I don't know what I would have done without these scenes, but, uh, circulation zero.com or .net. I can't remember if they've archived, uh, a handful of zines, but one of them, what slash was very important. Uh, and then damage, which was based in San Francisco, but now slash based in LA. Well, there was a, a writer named Caitlin Hines, H I N E S who wrote a, a scene report, a San Francisco scene report. And so slash would come out every month and Caitlin's scene reports in I mean, I shouldn't call her. I mean, that she would just go by Caitlin in the in Slash. Uh, from especially in 1979, were incredibly important because she really kept sort of the like she would just she was a great off the cuff sort of writer. It sounded like she's just talking to you, but she's just seeing it as it as it's happening and commenting on it. So when when people are saying when people are telling me in interviews that you know we felt like punk was was dead by 1979. Well, you can go back and see Caitlin's uh, monthly scene reports kind of tracking that sentiment of by the end of 1979 saying, you know, this is done. Now we're now she's interested in reggae or, or something, you know, people are trying to figure out what to do next. And so you can really see um, the, the tenor of, can you see the tenor of the times? <laughs> you can gauge the tenor of the times through what people were writing. Another example would be, um, a puncture, which was not a, um, you know, it turned into something I, I realized later on that was, that was more of a glossy sort of magazine, but I only came across that toward the end. I stumbled across when in visiting someone, an old copy, and then it turned out that they reissued the right at that, around that same time, the first six issues of puncture. And, you know, it's not, um, a, by flawless by any means, but none of these zines were, were flawless. They were, everybody was working, you know, uh, again, with basically zero budget, but but Patty Sterling was a great uh, writer, I thought, who chronicled that little period of say eighty two, eighty three, eighty four, and she would write about toiling midgets and Flipper in a way that was intelligent, but also you know it wasn't say uh, Maximum Rock and Roll, which was very kind of. <laughs> It did its thing, but but its coverage was very regimented when I would look back at it. And they wouldn't give much space to anything in particular. The Flipper comes out with their first album, and and they're almost dismissive of it in, in its one-paragraph interview. But I, I would look at Maximum Rock and Roll, but uh, Wiring Department, another one that was really, really important. And uh, that was 1985, 86, 84, 85, 86. And uh, Eric Cope, the publisher of that, and he originally, you know, he, he came from Iowa, originally from Sri Lanka, but, but had spent some time in, in Iowa. So, um, yeah, the, those zines like puncture and wiring department, um, really important because those were times when, uh, at least for me, it was hard to find anything else that was written about, you know, about these things. I mean, uh, I guess what the, the downside with zines is that, you know, there are many others that I just didn't have, uh, I couldn't get my hands on, uh, if I were to try to track down all of the zines I would have wanted to read, I would have bankrupted myself, you know, paying money on, on eBay. So I was, you know, fortunate to either uh, have people who, who gave me copies, say with wiring department or with puncture that it got, that it got um, 
reissued or republished or that someone would would upload them like with slash or damage but i would really comb through those uh just like i comb through the newspaper archives it's just that there was much less written about any of this stuff in any sort of newspaper than than uh than in these self-published zines so another question i want to ask you is um about because you, like there are bands you didn't cover either right yes. <laughs> like <laughs> one in particular that you didn't cover that but like was there like what are the were there choices can you talk a little bit about your choices of like who to choose to cover and who to choose not to cover yes <laughs> yes and i'm i'm working on something I, that i i'm trying to decide how to format it and uh, as a way to make it uh you know to explain some of this without getting into uh, because yeah i think there were a few different things one is that i i started with a particular sort of uh, thing in mind, which was, uh, you know, what initially attracted me to, you know, San Francisco and, and even any of this stuff to begin with was some pretty unusual stuff like Amarillo Records and I guess would be best known for, I guess Neil Hamburger wasn't really on Amarillo, but that's the same <laughs> person. Uh, in, in a sense. And so there was a sense of humor that was sort of, um, I don't know, confrontational, uh, maybe hard to initially grasp. Sometimes that didn't necessarily make you laugh out loud or make you laugh at all. And I would sort of trace that back from, you know, Amarillo to, you know, the Popo Pies and then Flipper and some of what they did. But then at the same time, I, w I didn't want to just focus on stuff that, you know, had a sense of humor overtly. You know, there was the moodier stuff like Sleepers, Toiling Midgets. And I felt like that was kind of two sides of the same coin. Uh, I would have, there would be a lot of stuff that would be darker, uh, but it would often be alongside of, uh, you know, coexisting with stuff that would be more lighthearted, uh, club foot uh, kind of material. But I realized after, you know, I was doing these interviews, so a lot of stuff that I included, say Indoor Life, uh, the band Indoor Life and uh, their connections to Patrick Cowley, uh, uh, dance music producer, I didn't know anything about them before I started doing the interviews. And people would mention them and I started to realize, well, I'll interview them. And as I interviewed them, I, I a couple of them, I realized, well, this really makes sense in this part of the book next to Tuxedo Moon. It, you know, it's it sort of those stories illuminate one another, whereas, say, Chrome would be a band that uh, would be relevant, but they were their own kind of entity. They didn't play live or uh, for the early years or people didn't really seem to know them. And so I was really looking at, you know, what would connect with these other kind of things now even with that okay so there's there's interpersonal connections i mean there, i don't think there's a chapter where it just goes off on an island to, to you know so say negative land would be another example where they're that area they're that time frame but they're they were their own entity um uh, then you get into stuff where uh i mean the dead kennedys i mean they're prominent but i would say that they're punk as opposed to post-punk. I mean, they kind of carried it uh, into to hardcore. And, you know, I, um, 
Brightwig would be one that that was that was tough because I interviewed several of the band members and I talked about God and I talked about um, some other projects that they were involved in, like Susan Miller, uh, uh, one of the, one of their guitarists, Mia, played was in, in Carolina, and I was just really struggling to kind of fit that into into the, the, the narrative. So there were certain things that where I had, I had them in there and it was either like, let's say there's a certain time frame, It would be tough to kind of keep circling back. And I'll say I was going from 1984 to 85 and then 84 to 85. And then I come back. So in any given era, I had to sort of make sure I didn't get bogged down in, in a certain time frame, um, just for the sake of like, keep giving some, allowing it to con- continue with some forward momentum. And so the main thing I would say about anything that's excluded is first of all, it doesn't mean that I think it was unimportant. And it also doesn't mean that I didn't like it because there's plenty of stuff that I came across or that I liked or that I thought I was going to write about. And it just didn't work from like the, the narrative point of view. And the last thing I'd say in my defense there is that uh, it's a, it's I really pushed it in terms of what I could get away with on the, the word count. Um, and, and so, I mean, it's up there right around 160,000 before the footnotes. So, um, and I felt like that was really, so it's kind of like, I, and, I, and I don't think I included anything just for the sake of including. I mean, everything that's in there, I really was enthusiastic about. And then there was other stuff that I would have included if had I been able to, to make it work. So we, yes, <laughs> it's tough. I mean, <laughs> I was just it's, wondering how you make those decisions. It, right? There's always those ways you have to make decisions, it was tough, right? Yeah. It, yeah. yeah. Um, so we've been talking for yeah, a while, okay, and we yes. probably keep talking. <laughs> yeah. um, but I'm going to ask you my kind of final question. Um, so, are you? It, is there anything either that you're working on with this that you want to promote or anything now, like a, something new you're working on? Like what's that final, like, what do you want to promote uh, out there? Uh, yeah. Well, this has definitely been something that's been in the works for, for a, a long time. And so there are a couple of related, well, as, as part of doing this book, I, I reached out, uh, in maybe 2016 to, to Michael Belfer of the sleepers and tuxedo moon. And we, uh, we just got to talking and he, he's saying, I, I want, I've really been thinking about doing a memoir. And so, you know, we worked on that together and that one came out before this book in 2020, it's called, uh, when can I fly the sleepers tuxedo moon and beyond. And it came out on Hozak books and the timing was fortunate in that, you know, Michael was not in great health and he, uh, was able to see the book come out and make it to its second edition. Uh, and he passed away last year in March, but I just want to sort of, you know, commemorate Michael and, and mention that that was for me, part of this project, even though, uh, this, this project that includes this, uh, who cares anyway, book, uh, and, uh, but, but for Michael, that was, that was his memoir. And so it, um, that was that. And then there's another one that I guess I'm not quite at liberty to speak about yet, but there is another memoir slash book that's in progress. Um, 
from someone who has talked about in this book. And there's yet another one that uh, we're in early stages, but I think eventually, eventually I really want to figure out how to uh, not figure out. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of eager to look at a different time or place because I, my musical tastes are all, all over the map and uh, I've been inhabiting this, this world in San Francisco, but I, I've still learned a lot about just uh, how people make music and, uh, and how they think about it. And, and so I feel like I've learned a lot about music in general, even by focusing on it. I think it's a good exercise for anyone. Not, you don't have to write a 550 page book, but, but if you get into a particular era and learn about it in a way that's maybe a little more systematic, you, you, you have a better understanding of things as opposed to, and you appreciate them more as opposed to the way that is so Oh, commonplace today, which is you just have these images and sounds thrown at you and you log on and it's everything's in a feed and, and you don't, everything is remixed and, and repurposed and you don't really know where everything, where anything came from. And so I think that's helpful. But as far as what, what might be a next totally different project, I'm still kind of, uh, it would be way too early and I'm still trying to, to, to figure out really kind of where to go next. Uh, Yes. So I wish I had something else to promote, but, uh, but, uh, oh, and I am doing a, I'm doing an, an interview. I'm, I'm calling it a podcast. I guess it is a podcast, but an interview series to go along with this book, uh, sort of complement it, feature some people who, who I didn't get to interview for the book to, to, to also, um, help future feature or spotlight some people who like Patty Sterling, uh, uh, Laura Allen, uh, from Carolina, uh, Denny DeGorio from the office of names that are not household names, but really interesting people I talk to. And so I'm in the, I've been in the process of, you know, recording and editing those as a sort of a, again, a, a companion series that just go 12 episodes. And, um, so that's, if you just search for who cares anyway, podcast, and you can find that. And then, um, yeah, what comes next? I, uh, I will just have to sort of improvise and figure it out as I go. Well, it was great talking to you, Will. Will York, who wrote Who Cares Anyway, Post-Punk San Francisco, and The End of the Analog Age. Thanks for talking with me for New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me.